We continue our study, which will continue this week and next, and Lord willing, start something new with the start of the fall semester. And so we're skipping ahead now to Psalm 139, picking our way through the book of Psalms. Last week, we studied and looked at the mercifully rare but very real experience of the psalmist who feels and is convinced that God is absent. Tonight we turn to the psalmist's conviction and intensely personal experience of the presence of the Lord and the comfort he feels in that in Psalm 139. There are four stanzas of six verses each, and we'll be taking them each in turn as we study this together to see the presence of God with his people. Let me invite you to hear now the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. O God, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. This is God's Word. May He write it on our hearts. Let's look to Him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would enlighten our eyes, that we would understand and behold wonderful things in your word. We ask that you would guard us from error, that you would protect us from uh, falsehood, that you would keep my lips from error, but that you would help us to understand and even to believe all that you teach in this word. pray you draw near to us through it and by it, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The psalmist delights here in the presence of God. And I want you to think about the presence of God in the four stanzas, six verses at a time. And I want you to see in the first place, verses one through six, the intimacy of God's presence here. I mean, it begins with this intimate knowledge of the psalmist, God's all embracing knowledge of me. He knows my activity. He searched me and he knows me and he knows when I sit down and he knows when I get up. He uh, knows my moving about, all these things he knows. He, he knows even the internal dialogue of my self-conversation. He knows my thoughts from afar, maybe even hear the deepest desires, even my most hidden secrets. He knows them all. There's no corner of my mind unexplored by him is what the psalmist says. And more than that, he searches out my path and my lying down. He's intimately familiar, I think is the NIV, acquainted with all my ways. My my path and my lying down, you sift out here. You winnow. You get down to the very finest of details, in other words. That's what he's saying. And, And more than that, even before a word is on my tongue, he knows that. Completely, Nothing comes as a surprise to you, says the psalmist. You knew what I was going to say before I said it. And before I knew I was going to say it. That's what he's saying. You hem me in behind him before you lay your hand upon me. And this is the psalmist delighting in an all-knowing God who knows him intimately. He's absolutely gripped by this truth. You know, there are different ways... To know things, among people at least, I find in counseling couples, I often discover that one knows things like a a man opening a a chest of drawers, whereas the other will know things like on a blackboard. I I don't know if you've had that experience or not, but it's a a bit of a stereotype. Maybe 80% of couples work this way. I I don't know exactly. Uh, but, you know, some people know things this way, like, like me, for instance. I, I, have, I have my compartments in my chest of drawers. I've got my work compartment, and I can open that, be fully attentive and engaged, and ignore the world. But when I can put that drawer shut, sometimes I can open my sports drawer. I can, I can shut that one. I can open my let's eat food drawer, right? I can open my family drawer. I, I think in a lot of ways, Melinda's a bit different she thinks it in terms of a blackboard. Uh, it's, it's all there, somewhere on the blackboard. And she sees it, as it were, all at once. I, I think people are 
kind of like that sometimes, one or the other. But here the psalmist says, God knows both those ways, so to speak. Everything on the blackboard all at once, and any one thing wholly attentive to it all at once. He's fully present everywhere all at the same time and he knows effortlessly this psalmist and the psalmist knows that he's being known and it's a beautiful thing although I think some people find that to be a threat it feels kind of like well maybe you know is this big brother watching me I don't know if I want God to be knowing me this well I mean some of us well let me say this all of us would be horrified if we walked around with you know a bionic eye with a video camera and, it, and it, it shot everything we saw and looked at over the course of an entire week. And there was audio recording and we spoke the sort of stream of consciousness that just came right out of the depths of our heart about every one and thing we saw and did. And we recorded that and then we showed up at church one day and out there somebody popped that thing in the video as we walk in and there's Ted. It's all, you know, I would never come back to this place ever again. And you wouldn't have me. You wouldn't come back either if you were known that well by other people, I think. Psalmist says, he, God, he knows us this well. It's scary to be known this intimately. It can be frightening, but for the believer, because this God knows us and loves us, we're not frightened off by this. What's God like? He's like Jesus. He sees people at their worst and he loves them. I think I've shared about the movie The Fisher King with you before. It's a wonderful uh, film. It's a fascinating, weird kind of film. But Robin Williams plays a character against Amanda Plummer and they go on a date and they are two people who hate themselves. And they get together, they go out on this date, they come back and he says, well, can I call you? And she says, no, you can never see me again. Why? Well, paraphrase, you know, by some weird accident, we got to the end of the first date and you don't hate me yet, but you will. And I just can't handle that rejection. You'll hate me and I don't want it. So thanks, but no thanks. (laughs) And Robin William confesses, I've been watching you. I know you're clumsy and you knock everything over. I know you're down on yourself. I know you're horribly shy. I know you have no friends. But I already know all this and I still love you. So you see, I will never leave you. And she says to him, are you for real? She can hardly believe that someone could love her like that. And that is the kind of love I think we long for. And that is the kind of love that the gospel offers us. And this God offers us to know us better than we know ourselves. Warts and all. And yet remain faithfully committed in love with us. The psalmist knows that kind of loving presence of the Lord. He doesn't feel threatened. He responds in worship. He's flustered with delight and adoration. I, I can't take in a God like you, he says. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't attain to it. He's, he's amazed by what God knows. 
It ought to lead us to worship here. He knows me and he loves me still. So you see the intimate presence of the Lord. But then you see secondly in verses 7 through 12, God's inescapable presence. God's inescapable presence here. You can't get away from him. Where should I go from your spirit? Verse 7. Where shall I flee from your presence? He asked. Now, listen, it's not that he wants to get away. I don't think that's the, the tone here at all. But think of the possibilities, he says. If I go up to the heavens, if I make my bed in the depths, I go on the far side of the sea. It's like you say, you know, if I took a rocket ship into outer space, well, there you are. And if I, like a Greek hero, cross the ferry of death into the depths of the underworld, well, there you are. And if I take the fastest jet and race the dawn of light across the ocean, well, you beat me there. You're there too. You're everywhere with me. No height is too high. No depth is too low. No distance is too far. Not even darkness is too dense. Verses 11 and 12 for you. If, if I were to say to myself like a child at night afraid of the dark and say, surely the darkness covers me and the light about me is just night no even the darkness is as light to you he says the night is bright as the day to you lord god sometimes darkness in the bible can be a picture or symbolic of the grave sometimes it can be that of trouble that overwhelms us like the darkness of the psalmist last week in psalm 88 darkness is dark to us, but not to God. He takes great encouragement in that. He's trying to say in the, in the most graphic of ways, there's no escape from the glad presence of God. There's no experience I need to fear. There's no situation I can get in where God's presence can't reach me. That's not that he says, you know, and I'm perfectly calm because of that about everything that's going on. That's not what he says, but he says, I do know this, I'm not alone. He feels secure here. Your right hand, he says, holds me fast. And so we can be like Jonah and try to run, but you can run, but you can't hide, as they say, and that's true. You can try to flee the Lord, but you can't get away from him. And we, and we wouldn't want to if we had any sense at all and knew his mercy. That's the second thing you see, the, the inescapable presence of the Lord. But thirdly, you see the inception of God's presence. Verses 13 through 18. Notice here, your presence touched me even before I could be aware of it. Verses 14 through 16. Your eyes, he says, it saw my fetus. You formed my inward parts and you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You can say, friends, you can say by implication that, that if indeed David's fetus was seen by God and cared for by God, and if indeed that was David, and it was, then abortion isn't okay. But what I want you to see here is more than an argument for a current, very tragic ethical problem. But I want you to see how it affects the believer's faith here. You wove me together in my mother's womb. You made a tapestry is the idea here. I was carefully arranged. You even arranged in your book all the days for me, even before one of them came to be. 
And so this psalmist, though we assume he knew nothing of DNA or chromosomes, had never seen the pulsing heart of a developing child on an ultrasound, but knew enough to be amazed that something so complicated as a human being was put together in nine months in his mother's uterus, and all things about that child were under divine control. Whether this child had blue eyes or green, blonde hair or black, big bones or small, was going to be tall or short, all things, he's saying, were, were known by God and under God's design and control. And that brought him immense, precious comfort in all his vulnerability as a weak human being. Already in the womb, God had a plan for me, he says. Every moment of my lifespan was fixed by him. My IQ, my mistakes... My foolish rebellions, my fearful mistrust, my adolescent trials, my adult accomplishments, all the days ordained for me. The pagan philosopher might despise such an intrusion on God's free will, but the Christian delights that all the hairs of his head are numbered and that not one of them falls to the ground but by the will of his Father in heaven. God, the Christian says, is not a tyrant. He's my creator. He cares for me. He cared for me long before I knew Him. Long before I needed Him. And this drove Him to praise. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. This is His language again of praise. How precious to me. The the context here of God's vast thoughts is God thinking of Him. How precious to me are your thoughts about me and to me, O God, even in the placenta. How precious to me. And it drives them to worship because God made and designed everything about him in all his days. So he gloried in it. There's no self-hatred here. The part of the psalmist, there need be no self-hatred for us, my friends. Some of you know this, the wonderful story of Eric Little, the famous from the Chariots of Fire movie and story of his life, he was born in China of Scottish missionary parents. He won the gold medal for the 400 meters at the 1924 Olympics. His devout sister, however, disapproved of his plans to pursue competitive running. She wanted him to come back to the mission field in China where the family had ministered when he accidentally missed a church prayer meeting, as I understand the story goes, because he was running. She accused him of no longer caring about God. And Eric tells her that though he intends to eventually return to China and to the China mission, He feels divinely inspired when running and that not to run would be to dishonor God. I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure, he says. You see what he's doing? He said, I I ran because God made me fast. And it's a delight to have this body to do these things. And he made me for the mission field and I will go there too. God's called me to that work and he did. And he perished overseas. You see what the psalmist is saying? It was 
It was all there when God knew me in the womb. At the very inception of God's presence with me, he delights in it. But finally, there's verses 19 through 24. And the importance of God's presence. Now, it's easy to think, David, why did you ruin this psalm? I mean, we had 18 verses going of this glorious, wonderful truth of how you know me and you're with me and I can't hide or escape from you and you made me and formed me. And now, this puzzling and troubling prayer that I bet you, if you've read your Bible enough, have stumbled over again and again. I memorized 1 to 18. I... I skipped to the last couple verses when I memorized this psalm decades ago. What do we do with this? A seminary professor, Old Testament professor, said, this is kind of like that classic Peanuts cartoon moment, right? Linus and Lucy are together, and Linus is eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and he looks at his hands as he's eating. And he, he begins to contemplate his hands, and he says, you know, I, I think I have nice hands. My hands have a lot of character. And he goes on thinking about them, and he says, you know, someday these hands, might, they may write soul-stirring novels. They may hit home runs. They may heal the sick. They may build mighty bridges. And then he gets up in Lucy's face and he says, Someday these hands may change the course of destiny. And Lucy looks down at him and says, They've got jelly on them. (laughs) We come to this psalm through 18 glorious verses. And we say to ourselves, verse 19 has got jelly on it. Verses 21 and 22, do not do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I mean, that's just hard. And we we can't skip this. It wouldn't be just for me, it wouldn't be fair to me as a pastor, though I was plenty tempted to. I mean, you know, I'm a chicken. But you can't understand Psalm 139 without understanding verses 19 through 22. Why is David so concerned in verses 1 through 18 about God's presence with him? Why is he concerned in verse 19 about men of blood, wicked men who were after his blood, seeking to destroy him? Because he's in danger. That's the context. He is God's anointed king in danger of being wiped out. And that's why God's presence to him is important to him in that peril. He got a fresh grip on the presence of God and it was vital to him and it was comforting to him. This psalm was not likely written in the quiet of a library somewhere, but more likely David was hiding out in a cave leaning against a wall and rejoicing that God was with him while his enemies hunted him. And so we must say, this is a whole. It's of a piece. So what do we do with verses 19 through 22? Well, 
Some people will say, well, you know, that's, I mean, that's, that's the Old Testament. It's not the new, but, but it is the new, friends. It is the new. Read sometimes Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, and the Apostles Paul, extremely strong language of those who preach and pervert the gospel as they do so. So what do we do with this? I want to suggest a number of things. In the first place, this is, this is difficult to interpret and apply, but what I must not say and what we must not think is that God's word should really sound different than this. God's word shouldn't sound like this. It ought to sound like something different. It's not up to us to determine God's word for God. But secondly, notice, please, that these are not just David's enemies here, but they are God's enemies he speaks of. In verse 20, they speak against you. Verse 20 uh, through 22, they plot against you, David says. They're, They're God's enemies. And this is, in other words, this is not some matter of David wanting some personal revenge for a slight against his person as a private individual. And you'll notice as well, David doesn't take personal vengeance here. He commits vengeance to God which is what the Bible calls all of us to do, commit vengeance to the Lord and wait on Him for Him to act on our behalf. We're we're called to not take personal vengeance in the Bible. And David isn't. He's talking to God about those who want to destroy Him. In other words, I think he's doing what Paul in Romans chapter 12 tells us to do. If you want to look there in Romans 12, Just briefly, if you, if you just scan your eyes down to just picking it up at verse 19, Beloved, he says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is, I believe, what the psalmist is doing. He isn't taking personal vengeance. And by the way, where did Paul get his doctrine there of leaving vengeance to the Lord? He got it from the Old Testament. He quotes Proverbs 25, 21, and 22. It's an Old and New Testament thing. He's praying, not acting. He's looking for God to deal with the rebellion against God's anointed king. Listen, on a personal level, we surrender our right of personal vengeance to the Lord when we become His. And we leave it in His hands. But would you also notice in the, in the fourth place, David is not insensitive to the problems of his own evil and that there may be evil in his own heart. And so he, he prays verses 19 through 22 and then he says immediately, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any wicked way in me or grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see what he's doing? 
He's not, he's not saying, well, you know, there's evil men out there who oppose you and they seek by blood and that's it. But he's saying there may also be an evil man in here. Search me. Lead me in the way everlasting. He's, he's not arrogantly priding himself on how he's good people. And those are bad people. He knows he's in their company by nature. He knows he's prone to the very same sins. So I do think we should ourselves apply the attitude here. We should share David's attitude. I think Jesus is teaching us to do that when he teaches us to pray, Our Father in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And do we understand, dear friends, that when we pray for God's kingdom of glory to arrive in its fullness upon the earth, that means salvation. For those who are waiting for Jesus, and it means the end and the destruction of God's enemies. We pray, thy kingdom come, and we're asking for grace and justice, for good to be established and for evil to be eradicated, for Jesus to rule and reign over all things for God's glory. As one theologian put it, God's kingdom cannot come without Satan's kingdom being destroyed. And so David is saying to us, pray, deliver us from evil. Deliver me from the evil one, O God, and from any evil that may come to me, O God, and deliver me from my own evil, O God. For God's enemies who seek to crush God's people, he says, Lord, convert them and change them. Or stop them. I think this is the heart of what he's doing here. And understood in the right way, friends. This is, this is a holy person hating the right thing here. In Psalm 97 verse 10. Oh, you who love the Lord hate evil. The Bible says. It's this element of danger here. The threat of evil that makes God's presence so important to him. It's the threat of his own evil that makes him cry out, Search me, O God, and lead me in the way everlasting. And where does that road take us, friends? It takes us to the cross. Do you know that? Our evil was attributed to God's Son, our King. And God did slay the wicked, just as the psalmist prayed, when... He slayed Jesus for us and in our place and on our behalf. He slayed us, our wickedness. And so at the cross, friends, you see the vengeance and love of God. We see the justice and the mercy of God. They kiss on the cross. And on the cross I learned the one who knows me best. Who opposes all my evil the most. He also loves me most. The cross proves that to me. Let's give thanks. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray because you oppose the proud but are gracious to the humble that you would teach our hearts to know ourselves so well that we would call out again and again, O Lord, 
forgive me, have mercy on me. And that you would so grace us that we would abound in kindness and love and grace against all who injure us. And that you would help us to live in the tension of longing to see the return of Jesus and a world set right and the evil one destroyed, banished from your kingdom. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.